We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. There is only one reason why a Christian would fail to have victory in this area of his life and getting along with fellow Christians. Because there is one piece of clothing, one article that we have not mentioned, and it ties everything else together. And it's found in verse 14. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is like the belt that holds all these garments in place. In fact, someone said love is the lubricant that enables the other virtues to function smoothly. From the earliest records of history, humanity has placed great value upon a few natural elements. Silver and gold, rubies, diamonds, and pearls have been coveted objects of mankind for millennia. They are the subject of countless stories and legends and the familiar status symbols of kings, queens, and the very wealthy. But what makes these things so precious and sought after? Well, for one thing, they are naturally very rare, so possessing them in quantity instantly sets the owner apart from others around him. These valuable elements often possess some special properties that make them particularly useful, beautiful, or durable. All of these characteristics make the demand for these items much greater than the available supply, causing them to be even more precious and rare. But have you ever considered how the virtues that God has told us to have in our lives are a lot like these valuable commodities? Welcome to another edition of Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We are nearing the end of this series of messages by Pastor Steve entitled, The Battle for Holiness. And we think you'll find these last two broadcasts in the series to be very helpful in your struggle for Christ-likeness. The Christian virtues that we have been studying in Colossians chapter 3 are sort of the gems and precious metals of human nature. They are both rare in their existence and valuable in what they can do. Yet God has called us to have each of these things in our lives and to have them in abundance. How can we possibly do that? Well, what if you found a source where you could obtain each of these valuable Christian virtues? It would be like a mine with gold, silver, pearls, and rubies all in the same place. You know, that's exactly what love is. If we have love in our hearts, then each one of these virtues will naturally flow out of our lives. We will not have to try to find humility or compassion in our hearts because real love always includes those virtues. Pastor Steve is here now to tell us more about this amazing source of Christian virtue. Now, let me just show you something that's important because some of us don't think that it's that critical about about forgiveness. And probably because we've lived with unforgiving hearts so long that it doesn't seem to to bother us. We think it's the norm. But au contraire, it is not the norm. 
Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Watch this. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Peter was trying to be real gracious here. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, was the Lord putting a limit? Is he saying, you know, you reach this number and then they do it again and you don't have to forgive? No, he's just saying it's, it's without limit. It's without limit. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven shall be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought uh, to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. 10,000 talents. We don't have talents today, but one talent was 6,000 days work. One talent. A servant would have to work six days a week for about 20 uh, years to earn one talent. This man owed 10,000 talents. So you understand that you can never pay this off. That's, that's the point of this parable. But since he uh, did not have the means to repay, which is a gross understatement, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything, which is a joke. He could never do that. Couldn't live enough years to do that. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now, this is an illustration of how God does it. God has forgiven us a debt we could never repay. You have sinned millions, billions, trillions of times against the Lord. You you couldn't pay that debt for all of eternity. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, about three months' work, uh, wages. Three months' work. Of, of pay. And he seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. What an ungracious man. What a horrible man. What a man similar to so many Christians. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall Jesus said, my heavenly father do also do to you if each of you should not forgive his brother from his heart. Now, I want to clarify this. This does not mean that if you don't forgive another Christian, you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is you're going to be tortured. You're going to be tortured and God's going to allow it. And that is what's happened. Many people were tortured. Uh, they've created prisons in their own minds. They've got uh, ongoing headaches because they won't forgive. They've got uh, ulcers. They've got all kinds of difficulties, bitterness, uh, because they have not forgiven in spite of the fact that we know that christ has forgiven us everything that we've ever done and will ever do against him there are many christians who who refuse to forgive one offense and if you do that you're in sin and you create a torture for yourself you create a torture for yourself and so this is this is extremely important and this is what uh paul is teaching teaching that you ought to always have an attitude of forgiveness where you cover it up. 
But if you cannot deal with that and it plagues you and it breaks your fellowship, then you've got to go to that person. Don't make any excuses. Don't say, yeah, but they're 99% wrong. But God holds you responsible for you, not for them. And so this is extremely important. And, and as a church, we are thrust together in a community of people in this church and others who, who we have to put up with all kinds of people, all kinds of people with sins and idiosyncrasies, and we are to forgive them. We are to forgive them. And what do you do? When you promise to forgive somebody, the issue is settled. God says, I will remember your sins no more. It doesn't mean that he forgets them. He means by I will remember your sins no more, I will not hold them against you. So when someone comes to you and you go to them and you promise to forgive, you are promising that you will not bring this up next week. You promise that when you have another conflict, you're not going to say, yeah, I know. Remember what you did three months to me? You're doing the same thing three months ago. No, you, you do not bring it up. The issue is settled. Now, you see, the reason that churches have, have been poisoned by hatred and contempt, instead of replacing uh, in the sins of the past with Christ-like virtues, we've just carried these old attitudes, stinky attitudes and behavior patterns into the Christian life. And uh, we were once like this, and we're going to continue to be like that. And Paul says, no, no, now you've got to live differently. That's the message of Colossians 3. You can live differently. You have a new nature. And if somebody says, I can't do it, I cannot forgive, I cannot bear with one another, I cannot be compassionate, then you must say to them, then you must not know Christ. You must not know Christ. Because Jesus Christ gives you the grace to do everything he tells us to do. There is only one reason why a Christian would fail to have victory in this area of his life and getting along with fellow Christians, because there is one piece of clothing, one article that we have not mentioned, and it ties everything else together. And it's found in verse 14. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is like the belt that holds all these garments in place. In fact, someone said love is the lubricant that enables the other virtues to function smoothly. In other words, all of these articles and virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, cannot take place unless you have love in your heart. Otherwise, you have legalism. Otherwise, it's forced on the outside. Yes, I will greet people. Yes, I will do this. But there's no heart in it. That's legalism. Policies imposed upon others. Yes, I will shake 10 hands today, even though I can't stand you. Um, that's legalism. That's just an outside rule, and you have no heart in it. You must have love in your heart. And this love is placed there by God at the moment of salvation. And uh, the Christian life, as you grow in Christ and mature in him, that love is developed, and that love matures. Now, Jesus defined what this love was like it's not just vague i mean the world sings and talks about love but they don't have a clue as to what love really is but jesus defined it in john chapter 13 he said in verse 34 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another even as i have loved you that you also love one another so if we know how christ loved us then we understand how we're to love one another we are to love one another with Christ-like love, and that means sacrifice. That means serving. That means putting others first. I don't just love my neighbor as myself. I love him more. I put him before me. See, that, that's why Jesus said it's a new commandment. 
The Old Testament spoke about loving each other as ourselves. The new commandment says you better love someone else better than you, you love yourself. You sacrifice, you, you put them first. Putting the interests of others first. And that's what makes for a unified church. That's why in Colossians 3, notice when he speaks about love, he says, which is the perfect bonds of unity. You want a unified church? You want a church where there's mutual um, unity and where people are serving one another? You got to love one another. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3, just uh, just two books back from Colossians. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we've been called holy. We've been called to be uh, uh, the chosen ones and beloved with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent, watch this, to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. See, it's the same thing Paul is saying in Colossians. When you, when you are humble, when you are compassionate, when you show patience and forbearance and gentleness, you are going to preserve the unity that we have in the bond of peace. That's what he's talking about. But now we get very practical. How do you do this? How do you actually put on this clothing? How do you actually put on these virtues so that you don't walk out of here and say, that was interesting, but I don't have... Uh, any idea what I'm to do in, in practical terms of how to put this into effect. So Paul moves on, and this is very important, and I want to cover this all today. Paul moves on to another key truth about putting on virtue, and he explains how we do it. First truth was, why put on virtue? Because of we're the called ones, we're the elect ones. Second truth, what virtues do we put on? Christlikeness. All this is Christ-likeness. The third key truth is, how do we put virtue on? And that's where verses 15 through 17 come into play. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now notice Paul mentions three things that belong to Jesus Christ in these verses. And these all promote, are designed to promote unity in the church fellowship. He mentions uh, his peace. We've been given his peace to rule in our hearts. We've been given his word to dwell in us richly. And we've been given his name to direct our speech and behavior. His peace, his word. His name. This is the way to maintain unity among the saints. So let's begin by looking at verse 15. He speaks of Christ's peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The moment you received Jesus Christ, the war was over with God. There's peace. There's peace between you and him. We are, uh, Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No more hostility between you and God. However, being at peace with God is not the same thing as having God's peace reign in your life. The peace that reigns in your life is this inner calm, uh, it's tranquility, it's a restfulness, it's that inward peace because you know everything is right between you and God and you and other people. That's the peace that Paul is talking about. But then someone comes along. 
someone comes along and disagrees with you or says something that bothers us or asks us to do something that we don't want to do. And then what? Then we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. That's what he's talking about. The key word in this phrase is rule. This word comes from the uh, Greek language, the old Greek language. It was an athletic term, interestingly enough, and it meant to act as an umpire. That's literally what it means to act as an umpire in the sense of one who calls decisions in an athletic contest. One who decides what was right or wrong in a game, kind of a judge, but, but really an umpire, a referee. So what Paul is saying is, is that when we Christians have disagreements and conflicts among ourselves, Christ's peace in our hearts must rule. We must never do anything that would forfeit his peace. In other words, if, if, you, um, if, you, if you've lost this peace, then it's because you have insisted on your own way. He teaches this in, in Philippians 4, the same thing. For bearing one another and so forth, uh, and the peace of God, he speaks about uh, the peace of God guarding your hearts and so forth. When you insist on your own way and you do things and say things that you know are wrong, then you will forfeit this peace. When peace rules, then you won't do anything that will cause strife and and disunity in the church. So here's how it works, practically speaking. Get this. When you are faced with a decision to make concerning what to say to someone or how to react to a disagreement, what to do in a certain situation, we're all faced with this. The question to ask is this. If I say or react or do this, will I lose my peace? Will I lose my peace? And it is that consideration for peace that rules and determines your course of action. That's what Paul means. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let it make the decision as to how you're going to handle a certain situation. If you know by handling it, you're going to lose your peace, then don't do it. Let it rule. Let it decide for you. If that's true, you're going to avoid doing anything to lose it. And the worst feeling for a Christian is to lose this peace. The worst feeling on earth is to lose this peace. All you have to do is read David's uh, Psalm and Psalm 32, Psalm 51 of when sin occurred in his life and he lost this peace. Now, the way to promote unity and love in the fellowship is to let your desire for peace rule in your heart rather than sin rule in your heart. And, and you know what ought to encourage us to let peace rule in our hearts? Notice the end of verse 15. He says, he speaks about being called in one body, which means he's talking about getting along with, with people in the church. But at the end of verse 15, he says, and be thankful. Be thankful for what? In other words, the more thankful you are for God's peace, the more you want to preserve it. Be thankful you have this. Be thankful you have tranquility. Try to remember what it was like when you didn't have it. And do everything you can to maintain it. Let it rule in your life. So how do you put on virtue? By letting Christ's peace rule you and your reactions to other people. It is the umpire in your heart. A concern for his peace will prompt you to be compassionate and kind and so forth. And, and you won't lose it. That's how you put on this virtue. You let his peace rule. Have you lost God's peace? You have it today? That it's not due to anything but your own sinfulness. Then how do you get it back? You confess your sin to God and you go to the person who you've sinned against. If it's another individual, if it's just between you and God, and you take it to God and confess it and agree with him and you repent. 
If it's to God and to other people, then you must go to that other person and take care of it and ask them to forgive you. That's how you get God's peace back. You get right with them. But you know what? We have to be very, very upfront and very careful about this. There is always a danger in basing our actions upon peace because why? Peace is so subjective. Peace is a subjective feeling. And subjectivism can be misleading. So why, while it is valid, certainly because the word says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, it is also uh, something we have to be careful about. And so the Apostle Paul goes on to tell us something else that Christ has given us to promote unity and love and virtue among ourselves. And we must take God's peace, but also something else that is objective, and that is Christ's word. And that's why verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Christ's inner peace is subjective, but the word of Christ is very objective. And we don't throw out subjectiveness. We're just careful about that. But you, you must have the word of God being your objective guide. And when his word richly dwells within you, then you will be controlled by what he wants, not what you want. That's the point. Now, let's think this thing through. What does it mean? What does it really mean to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? This is so important. First of all, what is the word of Christ? Is it just the word that the words that Jesus gave in the Gospels? I think it includes that. But the word of Christ is the whole revelation of God. It comes from him. It is not simply the New Testament Gospels. It is the entirety of his revelation. So keep that in mind. It's just another way of saying, let the whole word of God dwell in you richly, the whole counsel of God. Secondly, the Greek word dwell means to be at home in your heart, to be at home there, uh, to, to reside in us, to be, at, to be at home. We are to take in God's word so that it becomes a permanent uh, a part of our lives. That's what he's talking about. Dwell doesn't mean that you're just there for a one night stand and you move on. Dwell means that it's at home, permanent residency in our hearts. Thirdly, it is to dwell in us richly, which means in abundance. In other words, Christ's word should, should so permeate us and be so deeply implanted in us that every thought, deed, word, and attitude is under his control. This is, by the way, the spirit-filled life. It is the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 in which Paul says, be filled with the spirit, and, and then he goes into some of the same things that, that happen. So being under the spirit's control and letting the word of, of Christ so permeate you is exactly the same thing, precisely the same thing. Someone put it this way. They said, we ought to be so jam full of spiritual truth that if you are cut anywhere, you will bleed Bible verses. I like that. And hopefully that'll stick with you because that's what he means, that you, you are to be taking in the word of God, consuming it at such a rate that, that it, it just permeates your whole life. As Spurgeon said, your blood should be bibbling. Bibbling. It's just overflowing in your life. It's, it's, it's just a very uh, integral part of you. And when you take in his word richly and you're under his control, then you are putting on virtue because you are becoming Christ-like. You'll be Christ-like in your behavior, not angry, bitter people. You can't help but do that when you're really taking in the word richly. 
And we'll have to pause right here in this message because we are out of time for today. Pastor Steve will continue to explain the practical steps of putting on virtue in our next broadcast. So you'll want to join us then to hear the conclusion of this sermon. Now, as Pastor Steve has been examining this section of verses in Colossians chapter 3, you have probably noticed that the Apostle Paul is giving instruction that is to be applied both to individuals and to churches. After all, the church is made up of individual Christians, so it should be characterized by the same basic qualities. With that in mind, we here at Verse by Verse want to encourage each of you who are listening to be certain that you are faithful in a church where these things are true. If you want to grow and increase in your own ability to understand and apply the Word of God in your life, then you need to be certain that you are attending a church where the Word of God is richly present, a place where biblical instruction is more important than entertaining programs and glittering facilities. Only God's Word can fill you with the wisdom and discernment that you need day by day to be victorious in this battle for holiness. If you would like to have a copy of today's program, you can download the audio file at our website, versebyverseradio.org. You can also order an audio CD of the sermon if you would like to hear the message in its entirety. To order the CD, just give us a call at 727-239-0306. We want to take a moment to give a very special word of thanks to those of you who have recently given to the Verse by Verse Radio Ministry. Your partnership with us helps to maintain the production and broadcast of these biblical studies, and your gifts are greatly appreciated. And now for Pastor Steve and everyone here at Verse by Verse, I'm Jerry Pruden, inviting